Well, hey, my name is Chase, and I'm one of the pastors here tonight. Really glad that you could be with us this morning. Before we dive in, and I mean it, we're going to dive in today in the book of Daniel. Um, before we dive in, I want to bring to your attention something you maybe see on your Connect card when you came in or on the screen behind me before the service and the video announcements, but we are having fall kickoff. Uh, coming up September 7th. That's a Saturday, so we're just a few weeks out. Uh, how many of you know that Ignite exists not just as a church in our community, but really a church that's for our community and for our city? We value people, uh, whether they're part of this church or not. And so Fall Kickoff is our initiative. We go in and we take over Gooseberry Park, and we just exist, and we go there to feed people good food and have awesome family activities for them. It's madness and it's great. So with that being said, a couple things you can do to get involved. Um, one, if you're saying, I'd like to be a part of the serving team that helps connect people in our community to the church, um, we have various serving roles that you can do uh, at fall kickoff. Mark that on your connection card. One of our volunteers will follow up with you if you want to serve. And two, every person can do this. Man, invite your friends, family, coworkers. Say, hey, we have free food and activities for children. Man, it's going to be awesome. So I encourage you to do those things. Fall kickoff is going to be uh, incredible this year. Saturday, September 7th. Mark your cards. Uh, mark your calendars. We'll, uh, we'll be there ready for, the, ready for the community. Amen. We are in a series uh, going through the book of Daniel. We call this series Thriving in Exile. The big theme we're picking up on and unpacking as a church is thriving in exile. And to be exiled means to be taken usually by force from one's homeland or country to be servants, slaves, or to just dwell in a foreign land. And we're following the story of Daniel and his three friends specifically as they're exiled from the city of Jerusalem under the mighty King Nebuchadnezzar to serve in the royal courts of the greatest empire in the history of the world, that is Babylon. Daniel and his three friends are exiled. They're taken away to serve in the royal courts. And, and I love the book of Daniel because the wisdom principles that are in there do not just teach us how to get by and survive in difficult circumstances, but actually how to thrive. And even though Daniel records events 2,500 uh, 500, 2500 years prior to today, uh, there's wisdom in that today because in a lot of ways, though we're not physical exiles, we're spiritual exiles as Christ's church. That means we're living in a culture that's demanding allegiance to itself when our ultimate allegiance is to Jesus. We're living in this country, we're making our home in the Fargo-Moorhead area but this home really isn't our home because our citizenship is in heaven. So how do we thrive in exile? How do we remain faithful to Jesus in a culture that demands faithfulness to it? And throughout the story of Daniel, we see incredible wisdom for our day because how many of you know the Bible is not just an ancient book, but it's a timeless, eternal word. It endures, it stands the test of time. And so as we read Daniel, really we can see ourselves in his story. We can see ourselves in his story. And before we dive in, we're going to be in Daniel chapter 5 this morning. 
Uh, I want to introduce to you, or this will actually be like a recap for many of you if you've been a part of the series for the last six weeks, some of the major themes we've encountered in Daniel, because we're going to encounter all of them in Daniel 5 today. The first big theme that we've seen in the book of Daniel is this idea of God's sovereignty. God is sovereign. That's kingly royal language when we talk about sovereignty. When we talk about God's sovereignty, we mean he is the king of his domain. And how many of you know that his domain is all that was ever created in the history of the world? And so all that is God's belongs to God. Our world is under God's kingship and sovereignty. He is the ruler over our domain. He orchestrates the affairs of the nations. He orchestrates the affairs of human history. He is the most high God. He is the sovereign God of the universe. And we see that in the book of Daniel. Another major theme that we see in the book of Daniel is Daniel's faithfulness. Daniel's faithfulness. Daniel was a faithful follower of his God, even in exile. Right as they were taken into Babylon in Daniel chapter 1, they were immediately faced with a test. God had given the Jewish people certain food laws and restrictions to point to their set-apartness as God's people. This was called kosher law. You can read about it in Leviticus 11, but this kosher law had them abstain from certain foods, and so when they were brought into Nebuchadnezzar's palace as exiles, they laid this massive spread before them and said, here, eat the finest of the king's food, definitely not kosher. And they were faced with a decision, am I going to remain faithful to my God or am I going to bow my knee to Nebuchadnezzar in this culture I'm now in. He remains faithful. His friends remain faithful. They will not bow. They will not worship, even when the culture is doing so. They remain faithful. It's the second theme we see. The third theme, you've definitely seen this. This summer we spent so much time at Ignite talking about Babylon. And the third major theme we see in the book of Daniel is the pride of Babylon. The pride of Babylon. I was actually just reading... In the book of Isaiah for my personal uh, devotional time and jumped out to me off the page. Isaiah 13, God calls Babylon the glory of all kingdoms, the splendor and pomp of the Chaldeans. It's in Isaiah 13. Like Babylon was this massive fortified city with armies of hundreds of thousands of people. It was the greatest empire in the history of the world. So in one sense, they had a little bit of a A little bit of a reason to be prideful, right? Massive empire. The world had never seen anything like it. Powerful world rulers reigned in Babylon. Ultimately, it was this pride. Look what we've built for ourselves. So the sovereign kingly rule of God, the faithfulness of Daniel as a follower and worshiper of God, and the pride of Babylon are three major themes that we actually see in full display in Daniel chapter 5 today. And if we're going to draw a big theme, a big idea from the 32 verses we're looking at today in Daniel 5, it is this. Only the kingdom of God stands forever. Only the kingdom of God stands forever. Kingdoms rise and fall. That's the tale of history. Kingdoms rise and fall. Rulers live and die. Buildings get built and then torn down. It's only the kingdom of God that stands forever. And so with all that being said, would you 
Look with me, beginning in verse 1 of Daniel chapter 5. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Let me pause there. King Belshazzar is new to our story. King Belshazzar is referred to as the son, or more uh, appropriately, the successor of Nebuchadnezzar. It was believed that Belshazzar would have been a younger king. And so here's what happened. King Belshazzar comes into the story after Nebuchadnezzar passes away, and he now receives... As a young man, the greatest kingdom in the history of the world and all the power and prestige that comes with that. What could possibly go wrong? Let's look at verse 2. King Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar his father had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Verse 3. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple. Uh, Let me pause. That's when Nebuchadnezzar came in, 586 B.C., devoted the temple to destruction, and then brought uh, Israel as exiles. They took also the gold and silver vessels out of the temple because they were valuable. So they took them out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, the king and his lords, verse 3. His wives, his concubines, they all drank from them. Verse 4, they drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. And then put verse 5 up on the screen as well. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. Belshazzar saw the hand as it wrote. So King Belshazzar inherits the greatest kingdom the world has ever seen, Babylon. What does a young man do when he receives something of such great honor and prestige? Yeah, he throws a party. He throws a party. And so that's what he's doing. He invites thousands of his lords and all of his wives and his his slaves and his concubines. And he says, let's throw a party and toast to my greatness. And in fact, I'm getting a little bored at this banqueting party. So what does he do? He calls for his, his wives and his servants to go into the storehouse, the treasury. And why don't you bring me the gold and silver vessels that my predecessor, King Nebuchadnezzar, took when they devoted the temple of Israel to destruction. Why don't you bring those? We're going to fill them up, and we're going to drink to our own glory. And this might be a little detail that we just pass over, but it's actually really significant. Talking about the vessels. When we talk about the vessels, we mean the, the plates and basins or bowls and These were cups made of gold and silver, and they have a lot of significance, not just because they were made of valuable materials, but because they were used in the worship of the Most High God in the temple system. If you want to write this down for later, we don't have time to get into it today, but 1 Kings chapter 7, verses 48 through 50, you can read about when and where and why and how these very vessels they're referring to in Daniel 5 were crafted. And let me summarize for you a couple couple reasons these vessels were crafted. First, we see that Solomon... One of the greatest kings in Israel's history, uh, about a century or so uh, prior to this uh, Babylonian exile, King Solomon built a magnificent temple to the Most High God. And in 1 Kings 7, we read that Solomon would hire people from all around the world, people that were skilled in lumber work and woodwork, people that were skilled craftsmen, 
people that were forgers of bronze and precious metals, and he would hire all of them to come in and help contribute to the temple. He delegated a lot of the temple work out, but something significant is that Solomon himself, we read in 1 first, uh, first Kings chapter 7, Solomon himself was the one that by hand crafted these golden silver vessels. The one anointed king of Israel spent time individually crafting these vessels. That's significant. They were, they were, they were set apart. We also read in 1 Kings 7, that these were not just used in the outer courts of the temple. These were used in the very most uh, sacred place in the temple. you got to understand about the temple, if you can visualize this with me for a moment, that the, the temple Solomon built had an outer court. This is where you'd hang out, see your friends and family. It had the holy place or the inner court, and this is where you would pray and carry out religious ritual unto God. Uh, regular sacrifices were carried out there. And then there was this one room. This one room in the innermost part of the temple, this was called the holy, literally the set-apart place, or the holy of holies, the most holy place. And we read that the goblets and the dishes and the vessels that Solomon himself crafted were used in worship in this most holy place. The most holy place was a place that no Israelite would ever go, only one high priest once a year on behalf of all of Israel. Why? Because the most holy place is where God's concentrated presence was believed to dwell. To go in there means you would be unclean, you would die. The creator of the universe, his concentrated presence dwelt in this one room in the temple, and so the high priest once a year would bring some of the vessels that Solomon had made some basins and, and pour out an offering on behalf of all of Israel. You can read about that in Leviticus chapter 16, this ritual of the Day of Atonement. I say all that to say this. These vessels were not just value because, valuable because they were expensive, gold, silver, but because they were holy. They were set apart for worship of the Most High God. And Belshazzar calls for these vessels to be brought in. Not for worship unto the Most High God, but instead to worship themselves. This is the pinnacle of pride in Belshazzar's reign. Let me, give you, let me give you an example. Maybe we can try and get our hands around this a little bit more. How many of you in your family have like that family heirloom china set? How many of you have that passed down from like great-great-grandma Gladys type of thing, right? And these are the sacred sets of china. They're used maybe three times in your life. A birth, when you become a doctor, or when someone passes away. Right? This, this is the, the sacred set-apart china. Now imagine with me taking that china, inviting a bunch of your college buddies over and saying, let's have nachos and drink Pepsi out of said china. Let me tell you this, the writing will be on the wall, the writing will be from the hand of your parents, and it'll say dead. You'll be in trouble. Why? Because you're using something that's holy. You're using something that's sacred, something that's set apart for special purposes, and you're making it common. You're taking something that's holy, something that's to be treated with great honor, and you're using it for something that's ordinary and common. And to an infinitely greater degree of seriousness, this is what Belshazzar is doing. He's taking something that's holy, something that's set apart, something that's been in the family history for generations, and he's using it for something common, something idolatrous, 
something blasphemous. This is something his predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar, never did. Sure, he took him from the temple, but he kept him stored away. I'm not touching that. Belshazzar takes it a step further and says, we're going to take, we're going to drink, and we're going to do it to the glory of ourselves and the glory of our so-called gods. And so what happens? God crashes the party. Chapter 5, verse 5, immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. The king saw the hand as it wrote. Continue with me in verse 6. We're going to read a few verses. Then the king's color as this hand wrote on the wall, it, it changed and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs, they gave way. His knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation, he will be clothed with purple. He'll have a chain of gold around his neck and he'll be the third ruler in the kingdom. Verse 8, all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king its interpretation. Belshazzar was greatly alarmed. His color changed and his lords were even perplexed. Then verse 10, the queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall. Queen now crashes the party. The queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers. Verse 12, because an excellent spirit, knowledge and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called. He'll show you the interpretation. Continue with me in verse 13. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, you are that Daniel. You're one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king my father brought from Judah. I've heard of you, that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation. But they couldn't show me the interpretation of the matter. But I've heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now if you can read the writing and make it known to me its interpretation... You're going to be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck. You're going to be the third ruler in my kingdom. So Belshazzar is greatly complexed because this human hand starts writing a message on the wall. He doesn't understand what the message means or what, what its implications are. And throughout the rest of the verses we just looked at, we see a classic major theme, not just to the book of Daniel, but throughout the entire Bible. And it's this, which wisdom is going to prevail? Whose wisdom is going to prevail? The wisdom of humans or the wisdom of God? The wisdom of humans or the wisdom of God? Which is supreme? Which will prevail? And it's this battle, especially through the book of Daniel, it's this battle of human wisdom, right? The the kings of Babylon constantly calling on their wise men and the Chaldean scholars and the academics and the wise learned people saying, look, this most high God the Jews brought with them keeps doing stuff to me. I don't know what's going on. Can you interpret? And time after time, the wisdom of humans falls short. Verse 8, we read very pointedly. 
The enchanters, the Chaldeans, the scholars, the astrologers, they could not read the writing of God. I want to draw your attention to verse 10. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banquet hall. Um, You might have a footnote at the bottom of your Bible, but the queen here likely isn't Belshazzar's wife. It's actually probably referring to his, his mother, his queen mother. So picture the scene. Uh, Belshazzar's mom comes in and said, Belly, you think you're going to be able to interpret a message from the Most High God using Babylonian wisdom? says, no, I know a guy, his name is Daniel. He's not a Babylonian, he's, he's a follower of this Most High God. He's a Jew, he's a God-fearer. Yeah, he has wisdom like something we've never seen before. In fact, you should should learn a little bit, Belshazzar, because your predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar, saw this in him and appointed him as the lead wise man. He's like the lead nerd scholar of Babylon because Daniel had this wisdom that the humans in Babylon didn't have. And we later find, uh, verse 11, I believe it is, um, yeah, Daniel... Daniel says, I'm able to make known the interpretation. And we'll get to that interpretation in the moment. It's very significant, the writing on the wall. But this is significant, right? The, the comparing and contrasting, the battling between human wisdom, the wisdom of man, versus divine wisdom, the wisdom of God. Let me tell you this. God gives wisdom to those who follow him faithfully. When we talk about wisdom, we're not talking about knowledge. Knowledge is accumulation of facts, really important, by the way. Wisdom is taking those facts and that knowledge and that information and saying, oh, I'm going to apply this as a way of being relevant and helpful for people and for myself. Wisdom's applied knowledge. And so when we talk about the wisdom of man versus the wisdom of God, we see that wisdom's this great gift that God gives to everyone who follows him faithfully. And I want to encourage you with this before we move on. When we talk about the wisdom of God, we're talking about God's ways being superior to ours, maybe even when we don't understand them. When we talk about the wisdom of God, we're talking about even the wisdom found in the laws given in the first five books of the Bible. We're talking about these these maybe difficult, hard to understand things that are maybe countercultural today, or maybe things that, if we're honest, we're a little embarrassed about. Maybe we feel like we need to apologize a little bit for God's commands and God's actions and God's wisdom throughout history. But let me tell you this God needs no defender. God is the creator, we are his creation. God is the maker, we are what is. Made God's ways are not our ways. God's thoughts are not our thoughts. Let me tell you this. God knows what is good and ultimately helpful for human flourishing. Even those things we feel like we need to apologize for make us a little uncomfortable when we're talking about the Bible with a coworker. These, these situations that come up, understand that God doesn't need your defense. He needs your trust. Understand that God's Wisdom is good for human flourishing. Nebuchadnezzar understood this. 
Belshazzar's mother understood this, said there's a wisdom that surpasses the wisdom of these Babylonian scholars. There's something unique about it. We don't understand all of it, but we know that this is good for human flourishing. Call in Daniel. Maybe this is hard to believe for some of you, but I believe there are people in your life that are watching you and observing you and listening to you and saying there's something distinct about the way that person lives, their wisdom, their counsel, their discretion, the way they carry themselves, the way they do their work well. There's something unique about that. It seems good for human flourishing. I don't quite know what it is. That's the wisdom of God and the followers of Jesus. You don't need to be ashamed of God's wisdom. You don't need to be ashamed of God's commands. In fact, we're instructed repeatedly, ask for wisdom. Ask for discretion. It will be given to you. Are you praying and asking for wisdom to navigate your life? Are you reading the teachings of Jesus who was wisdom embodied to emulate our lives after the wise teachings, the wise living and relationships of Jesus? God's wisdom is good for human flourishing. And Daniel and his Babylonian companions, they understood this. So then we get to the all-important interpretation of the handwriting on the wall. The moment we've all been waiting for, right? Verse 17, we'll continue. Daniel answered and said before the king, I don't need your gifts. Let them be for yourself. Give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed. Whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up. And whom he would, he humbled. But when Nebuchadnezzar's heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne. His glory was taken from him. Let me pause there. You're going to start to see some similarities. Um, really what Daniel's doing is recalling and reminding Belshazzar of what happened in Daniel chapter 4 when Nebuchadnezzar was brought low before the Most High God. Verse 21. He was driven from among the children of mankind and his, man, uh, his mind was made like that of a beast. His dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets, it over, uh, it's, and sets over it whom he will. And you, his son or successor, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this, but you have lifted up your heart against the Lord of heaven. And the vessels of his house, this is the beginning of chapter 5, the vessels of the Lord's house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords and your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them. You've praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know. But the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways, you've not honored him. You've dishonored him. You've profaned him. You've made a mockery of his holiness and his goodness. So what Daniel's saying to Belshazzar before he gives the interpretation of the handwriting on the wall, he said, we need to deal with the more important heart issue here. He says, Belshazzar, take a lesson from history. Your predecessor, King Nebuchadnezzar, 
humbled himself before God after going head to head with the most sovereign, powerful creator. He humbled himself. He says, Belshazzar, you got to do the same. He said, the amount of pride that's in you is despicable. He says, would you turn and humble yourself before this most high God like Nebuchadnezzar did? Humble yourself before the true king of kings and the true sovereign of the world. Then we continue in verse 24. From his presence, the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed. Mene, mene, tekel, and persin. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. What are these odd words? This is Aramaic. Um, the Aramaic language was rising to, rising to prominence at the time. It was the main language of the Babylonians, and so this was an Aramaic message. Uh, it was likely that Belshazzar would have been able to read the characters, the consonants of these words, but he didn't understand the implications and the significance. He just knew that there was something more here. And so what does Daniel say? He says, Mene, your days have been numbered. Your kingdom's days are coming to an end. Tekel, it's been weighed. You've been measured. You've been weighed. You must be this tall to ride. You're too short. You've been found wanting. And Perez, or Persin, uh, divided. Your kingdom's going to be divided, and it's given to the Medes and the Persians, the next world power that knocked out Babylon and rose to prominence in the world. Continue in verse 29. After Daniel interpreted the writing on the wall, Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck, and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. And these you see this is very significant. The last two verses, verses 30 and 31. That very night, the night of this party, Belshazzar the Chaldean king was killed. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom being about 62 years old. Understand the significance of this. The greatest, most fortified, most untouchable empire the world had ever seen, the moment God decreed it, it was brought down. The very night God decreed the fall of Babylon because of their pride, it was brought down and handed to the next world power just lying in wait to inherit this kingdom. The highest, most exalted, glorious kingdom in the history of the world was brought very low in the matter of moments. Why? Because of the God, the true sovereign over all that is created, the true sovereign over history and empires, decreed it. Or to say it this way, the reason Babylon fell is because only the kingdom of God stands forever. Only the kingdom of God stands forever. Understand this, before Babylon were the mighty Assyrians. After Babylon came the Medes and the Persians. They fell too. 
After the Medes and Persians came the mighty Greeks, which then shifted to Greco-Roman occupation and the Roman Empire. That fell too. The rise and fall of empires and kingdoms throughout history exists to point us beyond those temporal earthly kingdoms to an eternal spiritual kingdom, the kingdom of God, the ultimate kingdom, the kingdom that really matters, the kingdom that is not thwarted by human decision or human power. These are the kingdoms that really operate under the king, Jesus, under the kingdom of God. The rise and fall of kingdoms points us to the finality and eternality of the kingdom of God. And really this points us to Jesus because it was only about 550 years after the events of Daniel that God assumed human flesh and that Jesus Christ came and what was his central message? It was repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus came to inaugurate a kingdom that the world had never seen. Jesus came not to interpret or not to establish a political earthly kingdom, but to establish an eternal kingdom, a kingdom that is not of this world, a kingdom that the gates of hell will not prevail against, a kingdom that we are receiving as followers of Jesus that will not be shaken, Hebrews 12 says. Jesus came to establish a kingdom that's better than Babylon. Jesus came to establish a kingdom that transcends and way outlives and outnumbers the kingdom of Babylon. Jesus came to establish a kingdom, and this is good news because Jesus' kingdom is different from the kingdoms of the world in every way, shape, and form. There's no pride living in the kingdom of God. Everyone in the kingdom of God is subjected to Jesus as their savior and king. There's no relational brokenness in the kingdom of God because Jesus has come to restore relationship not just with one another but restore us to relationship with our Father. Financial tension, that, that's no more in the kingdom of God Depression and brokenness and defilement and suffering, that's no more in the kingdom of God because Jesus is the exalted suffering servant who's seated at the right hand of the Father. The earth is his footstool and he reigns and rules over the kingdom of God and that is good news because the kingdom belongs to those who place their faith in Jesus. The kingdom belongs to those who place their faith in, in Jesus. So by reading Daniel 5, what, what are we called to do? What are we called to believe? I believe we're called to do as Jesus said in Matthew chapter 4. Repent. Literally the word repent means turn. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Daniel 5 in shadowy forms points us to Jesus who is the substance of the kingdom of God. And Jesus said to his followers... In the book of Matthew, and he says to all of us today, repent, turn from your pride, turn from your Babylonian ways, die to pride, empty yourself before the feet of King Jesus, 
Submit yourself as a servant, as a slave of righteousness to the kingly rule of Jesus. And humbly walk, not in your own ways, but after the ways of Jesus. Daniel's calling us to submit to Jesus, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, and the king over the kingdom of God. Would you pray with me?